Volume Two, Chapter Fourteen of Gwen Wynne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Stevens. Gwen Wynne, A Romance of the Wye by Main Reed. Volume Two, Chapter Fourteen. Where's Gwen? Not for long are the companion and curate permitted to carry on the confidential dialogue in which they had become interested. Too disagreeably soon it is interrupted by a third personage appearing upon the scene. Miss Linton has at length succeeded in dragging herself out of the embrace of somnolent divinity, and enters the breakfast-room supported by her French femme de chambre. Graciously saluting Mr. Musgrave, she moves towards the table's head, where an antique silver urn sends up its curling steam, flanked by tea and coffee-pot, with contents already prepared for pouring into their respectively shaped cups. Taking her seat, she asks, "'Where's Gwen?' "'Not down yet,' meekly responds Miss Lease. "'At least I haven't seen anything of her.' "'Ah, she beats us all to-day.' remarks the ancient toast of Cheltenham. "'In being late,' she adds, with a laugh at her little jeu d'esprit. "'Usually such an early riser, too. I don't remember having ever been up before her. Well, I suppose she's fatigued, poor thing, quite done up. No wonder, after dancing so much, and with everybody.' "'Not everybody, aunt,' says her companion, with a significant emphasis on the everybody. There was one gentleman she never danced with all the night. Wasn't it a little strange? This, in a whisper and aside. Ah, true. You mean Captain Rycroft? Yes. It was a little strange. I observed it myself. She seemed distant with him, and he with her. Have you any idea of the reason, Nelly? Not in the least. Only I fancy something must have come between them. The usual thing— Lovers' tiff, I suppose. Ah, I've seen a great many of them in my time. How silly men and women are, when they're in love. Are they not, Mr. Musgrave? The curate answers in the affirmative, but somewhat confusedly, and blushing, as he imagines it may be a thrust at himself. Of the two, proceeds the garrulous spinster, men are the most foolish under such circumstances. No, she exclaims, contradicting herself. When I think of it, no. I've seen ladies, high-born and with titles, half beside themselves, about Beau Brummel, distractedly quarrelling as to which should dance with him. Beau Brummel, who ended his days in a low lodging-house. Ha, ha, ha! There is a soupçon of spleen in the tone of Miss Linton's laughter as though she had herself once felt the fascinations of the redoubtable dandy. "'What could be more ridiculous?' she goes on. "'When one looks back upon it, the very extreme of absurdity.' "'Well,' taking hold of the cafetiere and filling her cup, "'it's time for that young lady to be downstairs. "'If she hasn't been lying awake ever since the people went off, "'she should be well rested by this. "'Bless me!' glancing at the ormolu dial over the mantel. "'It's after eleven. Clarisse,' to the femme de chambre, still in attendance, "'tell Miss Wynne's maid to say to her mistress we're waiting breakfast. Vite, très vite,' she concludes, 
with a pronunciation and accent anything but Parisian. Off trips the French demoiselle, and upstairs, almost instantly returning down them, Miss Wynne's maid along, with a report which startles the trio at the breakfast-table. It is the English damsel who delivers it in the vernacular. "'Miss Gwen isn't in her room, nor hasn't been all the night long.' Miss Linton is in the act of removing the top from a guinea-fowl's egg, as the maid makes the announcement. Were it a bomb bursting between her fingers, the surprise could not be more sudden or complete. Dropping egg and cup in stark astonishment, she demands, "'What do you mean, Gibbons?' "'Gibbons is the girl's name. "'Oh, ma'am, just what I've said.' "'Say it again. I can't believe my ears.' "'That Miss Gwen hasn't slept in her room. And where has she slept?' "'The goodness only knows. But you ought to know. You're her maid. You undressed her.' "'I did not. I am sorry to say,' stammered out the girl, confused and self-accused. "'Very sorry I didn't. And why didn't you, Gibbons? Explain that.' Thus brought to book, the peccant Gibbons confesses to what has occurred in all its details. No use concealing aught. It must come out anyhow. "'And you're quite sure she has not slept in her room?' interrogates Miss Linton, as yet unable to realise a circumstance so strange and unexpected. "'Oh, yes, ma'am. The bed hasn't been lied upon by anybody, neither sheets or coverlet disturbed, and there's her nightdress over the chair, just as I laid it out for her.' "'Very strange!' exclaims Miss Linton. "'Positively alarming!' For all, the old lady is not alarmed yet, at least not to any great degree. Langoran Court is a house of many mansions, and can boast of a half-score spare bedrooms, and she, now its mistress, is a creature of many caprices. Just possible she has indulged in one after the dancing, entered the first sleeping apartment that chanced in her way, flung herself on a bed or sofa in her ball-dress, fallen asleep, and is there still slumbering. "'Search them all!' commands Miss Linton, addressing a variety of domestics, whom the ringing of bells has brought around her. They scatter off in different directions, Miss Lees along with them. "'It's very extraordinary, don't you think so?' This to the curate the only one remaining in the room with her. "'I do, decidedly. Surely no harm has happened her. I trust not. How could there?' "'True. How? Still I'm a little apprehensive, and won't feel satisfied till I see her. How my heart does palpitate, to be sure!' She lays her spread palm over the cardiac region, with an expression less of pain than the affectation of it. "'Well, Eleanor?' she calls out to the companion, re-entering the room with Gibbons behind. "'What news?' "'Not any, aunt. And you really think she hasn't slept in her room?' "'Almost sure she hasn't. The bed, as Gibbons told you, has never been touched, nor the sofa. Besides, the dress she wore last night isn't there.' "'Nor anywhere else, ma'am,' puts in the maid, about such matters specially intelligent. "'As you know, twas the sky-blue silk, with blonde lace overskirt and flower de luce on it. I've looked everywhere and can't find a thing she had on, not so much as a ribbon.' The other searchers are now returning in rapid succession, all with a similar tale. No word of the missing one, neither sign nor trace of her. At length the alarm is serious and real, reaching fever-height. 
Bells ring, and servants are sent in every direction. They go rushing about, no longer confining their search to the sleeping apartments, but extending it to rooms where only lumber has place, to cellars almost unexplored, garrets long unvisited, everywhere. Closet and cupboard doors are drawn open, screens dashed aside, and panels parted, with keen glances sent through the chinks. Just as in the baronial castle, and on that same night when young Lovell lost his own fair bride. And while searching for their young mistress, the domestics of Langoran Court have the romantic tale in their minds. Not one of them but knows the fine old song of the mistletoe bough. Male and female, all have heard it sung in that same house, at every Christmas tide, under the kissing bush, where the pale green branch and its waxen berries were conspicuous. It needs not the mystic memory to stimulate them to zealous exertion. Respect for their young mistress, with many of them almost adoration, is enough, and they search as if for sister, wife, or child, according to their feelings and attachments. In vain, all in vain, though certain that no old oak chest inside the walls of Langoran Court encloses a form destined to become a skeleton, they cannot find Gwen Wynne. Dead or living, she is not in the house. End of Volume 2, Chapter 14